Welcome to the Director's Chair, a Lowy Institute podcast. My name is Michael Forleylove and I'm the Executive Director of the Lowy Institute. On the Director's Chair, I sit down with political leaders, policymakers and commentators in order to understand what's happening in the world. I'm delighted that my guest on this episode of the Director's Chair is the Afghan-Australian entrepreneur Saad Massani. Saad was born in London into a diplomatic family. His father was a career diplomat for Afghanistan and his mother worked for the UN. After the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan in 1979, Saad's family sought asylum in Australia, settling in Melbourne. And Saad began a career in finance, moving to London to trade in commodities and currency. After the Taliban were removed from power in 2001, Saad and his siblings returned to Afghanistan to set up Mobi Group, and today it's the largest media company in Afghanistan. He's a champion of press freedom, a passionate advocate for Afghanistan, but he also retains strong links to Australia. Thank you, Saad Massani, for joining me today from Athens for the Director's Chair. Thank you, Michael. Saad, let's start at the beginning. Your father was a career diplomat who was posted to London, Washington, D.C., and Tokyo and other capitals. It sounds like a peripatetic upbringing. What was that like? It was wonderful, actually, in a lot of ways, because we sort of were exposed to so many different cultures and different ways of life. At the time, it seemed pretty challenging because you had to like start all over again. But I think it, it really helped us develop and prepare us for sort of the lives we're leading today. Tell us about your dad's resignation from the diplomatic service and the family's move to Australia. Why did your family come here and what were your experiences like growing up in Melbourne? My father was posted in Tokyo when the Russians invaded and it became very difficult for him to keep going. You know, just the thought of a foreign force in Afghanistan, you know, Afghanistan was never really colonized. So psychologically, it was devastating for most Afghans. And he reached a stage where he couldn't serve the government. Within months, I think he couldn't go on. And I believe they tried to get him to return to Kabul, which he wouldn't. And then we stayed on for another two years in Tokyo. He always had a love for Canada. Although uh, he had been posted to the U.S. and he finished his studies in the U.S., he wasn't inclined to go to California or, say, Virginia, where most Afghans and members of his family were based. So he sort of thought, how can I get Canada but with better weather? And it, it was as simple as that. He chose Australia mostly because of the weather. And ironically, we ended up in Melbourne. <laughs> and what was Melbourne like when you grew up there? Well, we moved to a suburb called Brighton, which is by the sea. It's a, it's a wonderful spot. I mean, we sort of landed uh, on our feet. I was 16, so I started working part-time, and we sort of hit the pavement running, so to speak. So it was good. It was, it was actually relatively easy for me. I'm not sure about my siblings. I thought it was great. After high school, you went straight into finance, and a little while later, you moved to London. Did you enjoy working in finance? It's unusual to know what you want to do. And for me, I felt if I can just work for 12 months, travel through Europe, and then come back and complete my studies, like most Australians do. But I really liked and was, was, was fascinated with finance and somehow landed a job in, in finance. And then it, it, was, it was the pre-87 boom time. And uh, I just sort of moved up pretty quickly and there was no reason to really take time off. I just felt that this was, this was going to be my career and I kept going and never took that year off. Remains one of my, my loves. I love finance and 
you know, sometimes I think if I, if I was to go to return to Australia or get away from media, I'd go back to finance. All right. Your career in finance took you all over the world, but I want to fast forward to 2001. After the 9-11 attacks, coalition forces, including Australian soldiers, removed the Taliban from power. You and your siblings returned to Afghanistan to establish Moby Group, and today it's the largest media company in Afghanistan. This is quite a story, Saad. Tell us how it came about. At the time I was in Melbourne and uh, I was working for a small finance or banking company, 9-11 happened and I had spent a number of years in Central Asia, in Tashkent, Uzbekistan, where I sort of got to know the Afghans, including the Taliban actually, and as well as uh, the Northern Alliance types and others coming through Uzbekistan, dealing with Afghanistan. So there was that opportunity to reacquaint myself with the country and the people. So when 9-11 happened, it was pretty obvious it was a group like Al-Qaeda and, uh, and Afghanistan was going to get the attention it deserved. And then, of course, when the Americans invaded, as well as the coalition forces, we went back uh, in 2002 and looked at a whole bunch of opportunities, including media, basically to invest, uh, just to, to be passive investors. And the intention was never to return to Afghanistan. But media is such a controversial business that we sort of sucked us in, all of us, pretty quickly. And we had to be in Afghanistan and we had to manage it on a day-to-day basis. And the business grew very organically, but you know, very quickly. Tell us about the role that Moby Group plays in Afghanistan and also about the challenges of managing it, as you say, on a day-to-day basis when you're managing a media company in a country where there's a lot of violence, there's a lot of different groups, there's a lot of people who don't appreciate, no doubt, the programming and the news coverage in particular that Moby Group engages in. You embark on a thing like this, not necessarily with sort of grand plans. I mean, you think, well, I'm just going to go out there and produce radio programs and entertain people. But you also realize with, you know, within a very short space of time that you, you have a bigger responsibility you end up covering a lot of social issues. So I think what we always were careful of was to, to sort of impose any sort of social change, very cognizant of, of how sensitive the Afghan society is and culturally they don't want anything imposed on them. So I think what you do is you expose people to new things and you try to educate people. In a lot of ways, you facilitate social change or you, you become an agent of social change without really being condescending and didactic. That's an important role. But I think more than anything, you entertain, you inform, you educate, you do many things. And I think most media uh, around the globe does that. I've never been to Afghanistan, Saad, but there's something about the haunting beauty of the landscape and the charisma of the people and the history of the place that I've always found very appealing. For you, of course, it's much more personal. You mentioned getting to know the Afghans when you were in Central Asia, but tell us about what drew you back to Afghanistan? What's kept you there? What's kept taking you back to that country? Well, for us, I mean, we were not your typical immigrant family in that my father was a diplomat and he decided that he would not go back in 1980. We always felt we would go back. We never sort of said our final goodbyes with Afghanistan. Mm. And I think most families are like that. You have this feeling you're going to go back home because you do. So for us, it was never a final decision that we would leave Afghanistan for good. Like say a Greek family moving to Australia in the 1950s or Italian family in the 1920s. That option was always there for us. Not necessarily an option, but psychologically, we were prepared to return one day. Mm. And, And we never had 
closure after not going back in the early 1980s. So it was not a difficult decision to go back. I don't know. I think the place sucks you in because it draws you back or draws you in because the people are very independent. They are charismatic. No doubts about it. They have this need for, you know, whether it was us and our investment, we're just people who know and can contribute something to the place. I think it's a whole range of reasons. It's difficult to explain. I think you, you feel drawn in and you, you can't explain it. By the way, this is the case also with a lot of other people who are not necessarily Afghans. People have been going back since the 1970s and they keep on going back to Afghanistan. But for us, we thought we could play a, a positive role. It was exciting, but it also was exciting for us to build a business from scratch. What changes have you noticed in Afghanistan society since the removal of the Taliban nearly 20 years ago? Everything's changed. You were dealing with perhaps the most backward country on the planet, and now you're dealing with a very progressive, aspirational nation, youngest country outside of sub-Saharan Africa, majority of the population under the age of 20, vastly urbanized. Although you see footage of the Taliban taking over cities and towns, but the people that they're, they're ruling over are, are very different. So tell us about the situation on the ground in Afghanistan today. The Taliban seems to be taking more and more territory as we approach the date of US withdrawal at the end of August. What does the immediate future hold for Afghanistan? We don't know. I mean, I think it's one of, I can say with a great deal of confidence that I have no idea. Much will depend in terms of what happens on the battleground. There's fighting, obviously, between uh, the forces of the Republic and uh, the Taliban forces. Much you know, depends on the international communities to help. Mm-hmm. I think a lot will depend on how the world treats the Taliban uh, now and in the future. So it remains to be seen. And even if the Taliban were to take over, much will depend on the Afghan people, whether they will accept their rule or will they fight back. There are many things that we don't have any clarity on, and we're finding out as the days progress. You mentioned before that a lot of the future would hinge on the role that the West and the rest of the world plays in Afghanistan in providing military assistance, but also in the recognition they extend to the Taliban. So what would you like to see the world do in those two regards? What would you like to see the West provide in terms of military assistance to the Afghan government? And how would you like to see the rest of the world treat with the Taliban? In a lot of ways, where the West is deceiving itself by assuming that the Taliban have changed. I mean, you're dealing with the most backward regime on the planet. That's just as radical as it was. It will continue to help and fund and mm. uh, offer sanctuaries to the most radical, violent organizations on the planet. I mean, I think the pennies dropped to an extent because people are seeing the way that uh, women are treated, how minorities are treated, how radio stations are getting shut down. So I think that all of a sudden, it's like maybe they haven't changed. That's really an important realization. And mm-hmm. I, I think that people need to be more honest with themselves and with their people. I'm talking about governments, of course. On the military front, the Americans really did betray their Afghan partners. I mean, to leave like they did without sorting out issues in relation to arming the Afghans, servicing and maintaining their equipment, including their aircraft, not worrying about training planning and strategy, which they were leading all of a sudden to abandon those efforts. It's a real betrayal of a partnership that was supposed to sustain for a long, long time. They did have a bilateral security agreement with the Afghan government. So I think 
basically flushed everything down the toilet. Now, even with the military assistance, there is this what the hell moment in Washington where folks are trying to re-engage the Afghans and double down in terms of their assistance. But it may be too late when, it, when you psychologically signal that we're going to get the hell out. Mm. The sense of panic that they created by talking about these, you know, getting the translators out, by saying that we're definitely not going to come back in. The Afghans are on their own. You know, people should know better in Washington. You know, the psychological aspect of a war is far more important than the actual war. I guess if we had someone from the administration on the call, they would say that the United States had been in the country for close to 20 years. They'd lost thousands of troops. They'd spent trillions of dollars. And even if they'd delayed it for a month or a year or another couple of years, it would have been delaying the inevitable, Afghanistan would still be in the same position that it's in now. What would you say to that criticism or that response? That's not true. And the administration officials will tell you that, you know, behind closed doors, that they essentially screwed up, screwed up the way that they built the Afghan military and screwed up in the way that they're transitioning out. For example, the Afghan military has been created in the mold of the US military. It's entirely reliant on contractors for logistics and for maintenance and so forth. But what they did was they said to the Afghans, hey, you don't have to worry about the contractors because you will use contractors that we will find for you. And on the day they decided to leave, they told the contractors, you have a week to leave or a couple of weeks. Mm. So that you create this force reliant on contractors. Mm. You don't let them choose the contractors. You choose the contractors for them, maybe for good reason because of the large amounts of money involved. Then you decide to get out. And then the first thing you do is you tell those guys to also leave because you don't want them to be at risk of dying or getting kidnapped and so forth. Same for logistics. So all of a sudden, the Afghans don't have anyone to fix their aircraft or to supply the army throughout the country with ammunition, for example. This sort of a thing, which may seem small, is the difference between winning and losing. So when you have no support, air support, when you're not getting ammunition in the countryside, mm. the forces feel abandoned. The special forces are different because they get close air support, they get ammunition, they get a lot more than the, your conventional military. Some obviously abandon their posts for other reasons, but I think not to have that support throughout the country, not to get fuel for your aircraft, not to get fuel for your vehicles, big difference. Now, that's not to say that there wasn't corruption, that's not to say that the military could have done better, but I think that the psychological impact and plus not having that assistance and that help so soon after the Americans deciding to leave made a hell of a difference, yes. Do you think other countries will try to fill the power vacuum created by the withdrawal of US and allied forces? And I'm thinking of that vision last week of Taliban officials meeting with Chinese Foreign Minister Wang Yi in Tianjin, for example. I don't think anyone can fill the vacuum like the Americans. Their decision to leave, you saw how quickly the rest of NATO decided to leave. So and that's why it was so important for the Americans to remain engaged. They're leaving. That vacuum will be filled by 20 other countries. And in ways that's going to further fragment Afghanistan. The Pakistanis are already in the country by supporting the Taliban. You have the Indians who would want to get involved to counter what Pakistan is doing. You have the Chinese, you know, who would see Afghanistan more or less as a, as a place where Potentially, the, the Uyghur opposition groups could launch from uh, against the Chinese government. They see it as more of a threat uh, and something to manage rather than sort of an opportunity. You have the Russians and the Central Asians. You have the Turks who have 
ambitions for the region. And then you've got the Europeans who would want to be involved somewhat because of uh, the potential with Afghan refugees. I mean, with the exception of one year, the Afghans have been the biggest uh, group of refugees uh, you know, going into Europe. So I think for everyone, Afghanistan is going to have its importance and everyone's going to get involved in different ways. It's just not going to be good. I don't see a stable Afghanistan without the engagement of the, of the Americans. Mm. So the great game is restarting with many different players, but at the expense of the Afghan nation. Yes. It is a bit like you know what we saw in the 90s. It's going to play out a little bit differently, but I don't think it's going to be that different, to be honest with you. The different groups could emerge in different parts of the country, being supported by different governments, and God help the Afghan nation. Now, Australia was one of the coalition partners that helped to liberate Afghanistan 20 years ago, and we had troops on the ground until very recently. What did you think of Australia's decision to withdraw our forces and close our embassy? Again, you talk about betrayal. It sort of doesn't bode well for Australia's ambitions to play a bigger role outside of Australia. I mean, you think people would have a, you know, more of a backbone in terms of sticking it out. People hadn't finished reading the, the story about the Americans deciding to leave, that the Australians had left. Mm. It was that quick. Mm. You know, Australia, I mean, obviously, Australia should have an interest, uh, mostly because of the refugee problems uh, emanate from our neck of the woods. But, but also, I think there's that sort of moral obligation as well in terms of what the Afghans experienced in the 1980s. But what most people don't talk about is the role the Afghans played against the Soviets and how we fought the proxy war against uh, the Soviet empire, mm. the beginning of the end for, for the Afghan nation. Afghanistan is not like this by accident. You know, we were a proxy, allowed Western and uh, other allies to catch out the Soviets. It became a trap for them, you know, the bear trap so to speak. And the, the 80s was devastating for the Afghan nation. Seven million refugees, a million killed, a million handicapped. 45 years on, we're still suffering. And I think for that reason, a lot of Western countries should have an obligation to persist if they can. Saad, one of the very disturbing stories in the last few years here has been about alleged war crimes committed by Australian soldiers in Afghanistan. As an Afghan-Australian, what did you think of that story? Well, I mean, Australian special forces have such a such a solid reputation that when the story first came out, it was almost difficult to believe. But a military force, in addition to to its ability to fight, needs to have integrity and honor. And you would hope that they would have enough discipline not to allow for these sorts of things to happen. And uh, that's why it was it was uh, it was actually quite quite disappointing to see. Now. I haven't read all the reports. I haven't seen, you know, how widespread it was. Mm -hmm. The fact that it's been exposed and it's being dealt with is obviously provides some comfort to, to people who obviously want the Australian forces to continue to do well and maintain that reputation. These reports have been difficult to, to, to read and to watch. Saad, we know that the Taliban have retrograde and awful views on the rights of women and girls. We saw even just last week that incident, the killing of the popular Afghan police officer and comedian Nazar Mohammed by the Taliban. What is your greatest fear for Afghanistan as the Taliban come on? Well, I, I think, uh, well, the biggest worry is that there'll be no rule of law. I mean, even the, the Taliban claim that they have a disciplined force that would essentially abide by the 
instructions of the leadership, whether it's in Quetta or Doha or somewhere else, we're seeing that uh, what you know with events on the ground that that's not the case. This is a sort of unruly, thuggish force that's not well educated. That's concerned with only avenging whatever they they feel that happened to their people. That's violent. That's not particularly sophisticated. And we're seeing this right across the country. I mean, there were 130-odd people assassinated near the border of Pakistan. And there are other incidents and other stories about how women are treated, not allowed to go out without a male companion, not allowed to go to school, certainly not allowed to go to work. Even the radio stations that, that have remained open, I think four or five of them, have been told to only broadcast the Taliban propaganda. But uh, they've also been told not to have women's voices on the radio or not to have music. The frustrating thing is, you know, I'm not saying it's a feeling. I mean, I think a lot of people have talked about this idea that the Taliban have changed. For the Taliban, this sort of extreme ideology is the reason why they, you know, they continue to, to, to remain dominant because they use violence and because they're very black and white on issues. Without that ideology, they're not the Taliban. And of course, with other extremists as well. I mean, I think you can't strip them of, of their sort of violent behavior and their sort of hardcore ideology. Mm. So what does this mean for the future of Moby Group? I mean, you, you mentioned there the implications for radio stations in areas that the Taliban have taken. What does this mean for Moby Group? What does it mean for your commitment and your own personal ability to travel to Afghanistan and travel around in the country? Well, I mean, we couldn't go back in the 80s and then we couldn't go back in the mid-90s because of the Taliban. And and if we can't go back again, we will find other ways of continuing our work. Now, of course, the hope is that that's not going to be the case. And there's still plenty of time to, to turn things around, although the you know prospects don't seem good right now. But you know, we, we have to be very pragmatic and uh, we're a very practical group of people as a nation, I think, and uh, us as a company. One thing I can guarantee you, Michael, is that we'll continue doing what we're doing. We're, we'll continue to put up programs, broadcast our content, do our news stories inside the country, from outside the country, from wherever. So for us to keep going is probably the single most important thing we could do. Let me ask you about a different topic, and that is COVID in Afghanistan. We're so focused on the war against the Taliban, we don't read much about the struggle against the virus in Afghanistan. What effect has the pandemic had in Afghanistan? Obviously, it's been a challenge for the government with limited resources and hospital beds and oxygen and so forth. You know, and a lot of people have had it, by the way. I mean, I think in our, in our company, it's uh, more than half have had it. We have five, 600 people. And uh, I would assume last I checked was like, you know, 50% and maybe 60% now. What's interesting in Afghanistan is that, yes, a lot of people have died. People have gotten very sick, but most Afghans have, have coped with it well enough to survive and to tell the story. And I think it's mostly because Afghans, you know, diabetes and obesity is another major issue in Afghanistan. I think people are relatively fit. So I think for that reason, it hasn't been as devastating as, say, as a virus in India, for example. Also, I think it's a reality that you have to deal with it. I think a lot of Afghans are pretty stoic and they have bigger problems. So as much as people attempt to wear masks and, you know, and socially distance, but they also realize they have to go and make a living and take their kids to school or go shopping or whatever. So life continued. I mean, there, there have been periods, I think, initially 
where the country was locked down, but I think we realized pretty quickly that you know, it cannot be sustained forever. Let me ask you about the effect of COVID on international travel and globalization. You were mentioning at the beginning of the podcast that even when you were growing up, you lived a very international life. And I always think of you as a bit of a will-of-the-wisp, Saad, because you have family all over the world. And every time I see you on social media, you're somewhere else. You're in Greece today, for example. Do you think the world will return to the pre-COVID era of frictionless international travel where people could travel around the world quite easily and cheaply and safely? Or do you think the future will be a different world of variants and lockdowns and vaccine passports and a kind of deceleration of human globalization? I don't think the, the genie's out of the bottle. I don't think you can ever go back. Globalization is a reality that you know we have to all deal with. So I think that we will slowly get back to what it was like pre-COVID, with the exception of the first six six weeks when the whole world went, went into lockdown. I have traveled. I'm vaccinated. I get tests done mm. on average twice a week, but there have been instances where I've been tested almost every day. I mean, the common cold was a coronavirus. I mean, I think it's going to get weaker, although we'll have different variants. But mm. you know, we can't stop the world from engaging with each other, and I. I think that the concern I have, especially in Australia, is that it's sort of fortress Australia all over again. I just wonder about, you know, this virus being used by governments, not authoritarian governments, democratic governments, mm. that allows them to rule over their, their populations in ways they shouldn't in democratic countries. I mean, the fact that in Australia you're told you cannot travel and you have to apply for a travel permit, to me, is, you know, someone who is always fearful of a sort of a communist regime and authoritarian regime. It is beyond belief and that the fact it's not getting challenged. Let me finish on a positive, if I can, Saad. Let me ask you, we've spoken today a lot about your connection to Afghanistan, but you have a, a really strong connection to Australia too. I know you have a lot of affection for this country. Moving beyond COVID, what are your hopes for Australia's future? What kind of role would you like to see Australia playing in the world? Australia has always punched above its weight in sports or business or entertainment. I, I think a, a very engaged Australia globally is good for Australia. It's good for the world. And it, it really is a, it, it's sad to see uh, Australia totally disengaged. And at the sort of micro level, I'm talking about Afghanistan, but even at the macro level, in terms of I went for a run in Sydney, Sydney Harbour Bridge, and it was just, Sort of down below where the opera house is, there was no one on the you know on the street. I mean, there were no tourists. There was no one. It was a strange sight, and I think it's it's good to see Australia reopen and for Australians also to to reengage and to travel throughout the world. I think Australia can play a very positive role in particular sectors like the mining sector and so forth, and hopefully they can do more. Saad Masani, you lead a very interesting life. We understand and respect your deep connections to Afghanistan, but we also claim you as a member of the Australian diaspora, fellow national of this country, Canada, with better weather, as your dad said. So thank you very much, Saad Masani, for speaking with me today from Athens on the Director's Chair. Thank you, Michael. Great to be on your show. You've been listening to The Director's Chair, a podcast by the Lowy Institute, hosted by me, Michael Fullylove. Thanks for listening, and please tune in to the next episode of The Director's Chair.